Brian Simmons is the author of The Passion Translation, the suddenly wildly popular revival Bible, which has been endorsed by famous pastors. It's showing up in Bible apps like YouVersion on websites and in many churches, it has become their Bible. From their pulpit, they use The Passion Translation. What's alarming is that Brian Simmons doesn't appear to have the normal qualifications for doing a Bible translation. He does claim, however, that God has given him secrets of Hebrew and Greek to make a translation unlike any we've had before. Here's Brian sharing this with his own lips. When I translate the Word of God and I do the ministry He's called me to do, I want the Spirit of the Lord. Like intimate lovers, that the Spirit would, would breathe into me. And as I exhaled, it becomes revelation to the people of God. I believe God gave me the key to the book of Proverbs. I discovered and uncovered so many mysteries and glory realms in the book of Psalms. It will take your breath away. I'm telling you, secrets that only come from above. I'm here to share some of those secrets with you. But what if we could hire top scholars to review the Passion Translation thoroughly and then tell us what they honestly think about it? Well, that is what my Passion Project's all about. With your help, I've been able to hire top scholars, and this is the first review in that series of reviews. We're starting with the book, The Song of Songs, which Brian says is his favorite book of the Bible. The first is the Song of Songs. I picked my favorite book. It is the translation from the authentic, original Hebrew Aramaic text that is going to shock the daylights into you. Amen. It's going to absolutely stun you. In this video, you're going to hear from Dr. Trimper Longman, who is a pro on the Song of Songs. I mean, he's like the guy for the Song of Songs. And he reviewed Brian Simmons' translation of the Song of Songs in the Passion Translation. And this is what he said. Dr. Longman, Trimper, for those not yet familiar with you, can you tell us a bit about your translation experience and your special interest in the Song of Songs in particular? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I've been uh, teaching and writing on the Old Testament for about 40 years now. And uh, and in terms of translation work, I uh, worked on a lot of the most popular um, English translations. But the one that I worked on the most is the New Living Translation, where I was in charge of the wisdom literature, which includes the Song of Songs. Uh, but I've also done work for other translations um, as well, the NIV and um, the Message, um, the Common Bible, and uh, and the Christian Standard Bible, a whole bunch of Bibles I've worked on. But in terms of the Song of Songs, uh, most notably, I've written... Uh, a commentary on it for the Erdman's Nightcot or New International Commentary of the Old Testament series. So that's my my biggest contribution to um, Song of Songs study. Yeah, well, I'm really grateful to have you as part of this project. This my, my I'm calling it my passion project. <laughs> and, right. uh, I'm grateful to have you because because I, what I wanted was people who have a lot of experience and a special interest in the very parts of the book they review because it will give a window um, of insight for the average Christian who doesn't know ancient languages and who doesn't know how to evaluate a translation so they can understand what's up with the Passion Translation. So the first question I've actually got for you is whether it's honest to actually call this a translation. I mean, the title of the work is The Passion Translation. Um, it, you know, Brian Simmons and Broad Street Publishing claim that it's a translation. Here's a, actually, I'll read you a quote from their website and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. They say, the Passion Translation is a new version of God's word that is considered a translation because it uses the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts to translate the essential meaning of the scriptures into contemporary English. 
What are your thoughts on that? It is true. Let me start by saying that all translations involve interpretation. So it's not a matter of the fact that there is some measure of interpretation involved that would lead me to the conclusion that the passion translation, if it's a translation, is is not a good one. <laughs> uh, and that's because um, the translator imports uh, foreign meanings into the text. So I'm not saying, and I don't know whether, whether the translator knows uh, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, well, um, I'm, I am saying that um, that that the that the passion translation uh, sometimes can't be justified by the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And for that reason, I would say it's not a translation. It's more like a highly, highly, highly interpretive paraphrase. So a paraphrase, I think most people know a paraphrase means it's like, well, this is really what it's saying. I'm not going to worry about exactly the wording, but here's kind of the heart of what's being said here. Um, but you say it's highly, highly, highly interpretive. Why do you qualify even the term paraphrase with with all those extra words? Uh, yeah, because, I mean, you can have a, a paraphrase that sticks pretty closely to the original languages, uh, but... Because a paraphrase actually technically is taking something in one language and rendering it in different words in another language, um, but 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 I but um, but I say it's highly interpretive because uh, the translator um, Brian Simmons, I guess it is, um, he um, he has uh, he has concluded that the Song of Songs is an allegory. And so he uh, actually translates in a way that brings out an allegorical meaning that isn't explicit in the text. I mean, even if the Song of Songs is an allegory, which uh, almost everybody today says it's not, um, by everybody, I mean scholars who study the Song of Songs, um, you know, the 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 allegorical meaning is not explicit in, in the text itself, in the Hebrew. Now, you said that that's actually in your in your review, which for everybody watching, there's a link below. You can actually read this review for yourself for free. It's it's available there. It's, and it's a thorough, thoughtful review. I thought you did a really good job with it. Um, but you said that this is actually the biggest problem with the Passion Translation's rendering of the Song of Songs in particular, that, it's, that it treats it as an allegory rather than uh, as it, what, what would you say it actually is meant to be? Well, I, I think it's a it's a love poetry, uh, and it's uh, love poetry within the Bible, which is trying to teach us things about God's uh, desires for intimacy within uh, marriage. Uh, I think it also has theological meaning uh, because within the Bible, the um, the there's this rather pervasive metaphor of our relationship with God being like uh, a marriage. And, but, but the way to understand that is the more we learn about God's intentions for human marriage in terms of its intimacy, its exclusivity, its passion, uh, the more we learn about, the more that informs our understanding of the divine human metaphor 
in scripture that our relationship with God should be intimate and passionate and exclusive. The problem with rendering it as an allegory is, uh, first of all, you just cut all that out. And the second thing is that you make some arbitrary connections between the text and its theological meaning. So how big of it, like, because for a lot of people, I mean, they just honestly don't know how to wrap their heads around the, some of these issues and help help us out. How big of a deal is this that the the very nature of the Song of Songs is is now being turned into allegory? And would you agree with this term artificially that the yeah. translators artificially creating allegory as and then presenting it as translation and it's losing what the nature of the Song of Songs is? Like, how big of a deal is that? It's a big, big deal uh, because, first of all, uh, God is is concerned about us as human beings, and sexuality is a big part of who we are as human beings. Um, Song of Songs connects back to Genesis 2, the man and the woman in the garden naked and feeling no shame. God created us sexual beings. Um, and Genesis 3, that relationship is fractured through sin. Uh, and the Song of Songs, as one uh, scholar, Phyllis Triple, put it, is uh, is about the already not yet redemption of sexuality. And so it uh, encourages us or reminds us of God's good intentions and desires for human sexuality within marriage. And that's a really important message uh, for Christians to hear these days. And, it, and that message is lost ultimately yeah. in the in the version of the Song of Songs. So you'd say that the primary message of the text is missing in yeah. this translation, which is which is a big deal if, if we care about the the scripture and the message that God intends and the inspiration of scripture. So um, I, I would like to get your commentary on a couple clips from Brian Simmons. And so I'm going to uh, play these for you and just to get your thoughts. And the first one here, let me try and pull that up for us, is where Brian Simmons is going to say that the not only is the Song of Songs an allegory, but that the non-allegorical view is only 70 years old. Did you know the earliest church fathers, the earliest writings ever known in the church about the Song of Songs is the way I'm teaching it right now. It's only the last uh, 70 years or so that the sexual connotations and the sensuality stuff has come into the church. <clears throat> you know, who knows why? Well, uh, first of all, it's it's factually untrue that uh, the non-allegorical reading has uh, has come into the church just in the past 70 years. Though there is an element of truth to the fact that the allegorical interpretation of the song dominated uh, for many, many years. Uh, but we can cite a number of uh, medieval interpreters who uh, took it as a um, as love poetry rather than an allegory, but they were in the minority. And I'll come back to explain why that's the case. Uh, but actually, it's in the 19th century that the non-allegorical interpretation uh, began to become the primary interpretation within the church and now is by far the consensus uh, reading of it. Again, there is this theological message to it as well that I talked about earlier. But let me explain 
first of all, briefly, uh, why the um, allegorical interpretation was so popular in the early church. I mean, you have to put it within its context. Uh, we're talking about a church that also uh, advocated for celibate priests, okay, and also uh, was trying to encourage the monastic movement um, and and had a very negative view of human sexuality. And uh, if you study it, you can see that that's a result of a cultural influence on the church connected with Platonic philosophy. And so, um, so again, if you're going to argue that that means that the Song of Songs uh, ought to be interpreted in the way that the early church fathers interpreted, then you should also advocate for celibate ministers. I, I don't know whether ministers in your circles are uh, have taken a vow of chastity or not, but they should probably do that to be consistent. Yeah. Um, in, my own, so, in my own studies on, on, on marriage in the early church fathers and their teachings on divorce and remarriage, there's you, you see a clear influence of these extra biblical ideas coming in where they're actually – uh, authoritatively telling people that they can't do things like your spouse dies, you you can't remarry even then, even though the scripture clearly says you can. So there's this there's this obvious bias that's not coming from the text of scripture, right? And and so um, so so when you come to the 19th century, there are a whole bunch of factors that come together that help recover the original meaning of the text, uh, and that includes the wearing off of the influence of Platonic philosophy. Um, also, interestingly enough, and, um, uh, you know, there are definite negatives to modernist biblical interpretation compared to pre-modern biblical interpretation, but one of the benefits is you've got to justify your interpretation. You just don't accept it from the church authorities. So when, uh, you know, during the Middle Ages, when a teacher told a student that Song of Songs 113 which says, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts, and early church fathers all the way down to the modern period would say that's a reference to Jesus Christ, the sack of myrrh, and the breasts are the Old and New Testaments. And, you know, when you come to the more modern period, a student might say to his teacher, how can you justify that from the text? Um, mm -hmm. I, why and so and then the other thing is uh, we have a, a, a good appreciation of the ancient Near Eastern context of Old Testament writings that and in the 19th century that was being recovered and we have a lot of ancient texts that are formally like the Song of Songs from Egypt uh, plus Europeans were coming back in touch with Middle Eastern diplomats. Um, they were setting up diplomatic corps and they were going to weddings and they were singing songs at their weddings that were a lot like the song songs. So there were a lot of things that basically uh, uh, made it clear that the song of songs is not an allegory. And if I might say one more thing, and that is, you know, there are allegories. There is such a thing as a genre of allegory, but allegories are really, really obvious. They're not subtle. Um, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, and that's a story about a man named Christian traveling to the celestial city, 
and running into things like The Slaw of Despond mm -hmm. or Bunyan's other book, Holy War, is about a main character also named Christian who just lost the city of Mansoul to Beelzebub and now with the help of Lieutenant Wisdom is going to take back the city of Mansoul. So, I mean, that's an allegory. Yeah. And Song of Songs really has nothing, no, no indications of being that type of book. So there's like a there's a genre confusion that's being put into the Passion Translations version. There's another yeah. clip I'd like to get your comments on, um, and this is where Brian Simmons is going to explain what he thinks is the reason why why people don't think the Song of Songs is an allegory. And I'm convinced there has been a demon spirit for thousands of years that comes to every person who reads the Song of Songs and says. You won't understand. You don't need those droids. You will not understand the Song of Songs. It's all about sexuality. You'll go blind if you read this book. <laughs> but the Lord is unveiling in these last days the lyrics of this song that are going to change the world. Well, obviously, I think that's an outrageous statement, especially uh, since... Uh, so many faithful, devout readers of the Song of Songs have uh, understood it as love poetry. Um, and so, so I would seriously dispute that characterization and find it kind of ridiculous, actually. My concern is the people hearing him. I mean, he goes and shares these things all over the place. And I'm, I'm, I don't, it's not, my concern is not like Brian Simmons. It's the, it's the people hearing him and the influence he's, ex, his very strong and growing influence on a large number of people who are now being, you know, here's a sacred scripture that they're being given like a guru for this scripture. I mean, it's Brian Simmons and he's going to unveil and undo the, the demonic work that has kept you from understanding this book. And he does this in other books as well, he claims. And so, I, uh, for those people, just to realize, um, that's not right. <laughs> that's just not right. Yeah. And it's really the people's responsibility to look into the matter and not just accept it on the uh, word of anyone, me or or him or you. You know, yeah. um, you just as an occasion to really do some thinking and some reading and some study about it and praying and praying the whole time, of course. But you also need to use your mind and you have to uh, do a little bit of research as well. I like that. And that's a good encouragement too. It's we are responsible for what we, uh, what we swallow and what we spit out. <laughs> yeah. So um, can you give us some perspective on the big picture of, before we look at some specific examples, of the Passion Translation's handling of the Song of Songs about how much alteration, addition, and subtraction is taking place here? Oh, there's there's significant, um, significant, I can't put a percentage on it, but it's pervasive throughout the whole of the song. Yeah, you said in your review, um, his version of the song misses the important teaching of the song and you also said it obscures the important message of the song. And you said, does great harm by rep repressing what might be considered, what we might consider to be the primary message of the book. And so here, I just want the audience to recognize, and please correct me if, if, if it, I at all misrepresent your thoughts here, 
that this is this is not a nitpicky thing with little differences and little changes here. This is dramatic and significant alterations that means that you will not get what God gave in this book. Yeah. And I don't want to give people the impressions that I'm kind of a narrow-minded, uh, word-for-word advocate. Matter of fact, I, I think that the best translations are, are more what are commonly called thought-for-thought translations. Uh, and I'm one of the, as I earlier said, I worked on the message and I don't always agree with the message, but it's always, it, it's always sensitive. You can always see a connection between the uh, original languages and, um, and Eugene Peterson's translation, but, but you can't see that at least in the song of songs in the passion translation. Yeah, extreme liberties have been taken there. So let me get then in that, on that note, let me get your response to the following statement. This is on the Passion Translations website. It's in their FAQ on the page there. And they claim the text was interpreted from the original language, carrying its original meaning and giving you an accurate, reliable expression of God's original message. I, I would say that's a misleading statement, you know, um, the original intention I would associate with the composer, the author's uh, intention, which we can only discover through studying the text, and you can't derive some of the, well, a lot of the translations of the Passion Translation from the text itself. Uh, again, I don't know what's going on in his process of rendering the Song of Songs, whether he is reading it in the Hebrew and then in his mind just taking that and imposing a kind of allegorical reading on it. Um, so, but I can tell you that um, that when you look at, if you start like I did by looking at his translation and then looking at the Hebrew, there's a lot that I couldn't see where he got that from. Well, let's get to some specific examples. I think that will help also the audience uh, who are just very inquisitive. They want to know the details here, help them understand. And so you said Brian Simmons quote in your review, which again is linked below. Anybody who wants to read the whole thing um, achieves his translation by utilizing a number of ill-advised or simply wrong interpretive strategies. And I thought we could walk through some of the examples that you gave. You mentioned the etymological fallacy and chapter four, verse 14. Can you explain what, what is the etymological fallacy and then how does it relate to that example, that passage? Well, an etymological fallacy is when you look at a word and then um, from that you think about its, um, or you <laughs> You think about its original meaning and then impose that on the later text. Uh, maybe an English example. Um, nice, I think, meant precise early on, but now it means something else in our everyday language. And it would be equivalent to looking at a text written today that had the word nice and then imposing maybe its original etymological meaning. This passage is in this description of the 
of the woman's uh, beauty, starting with her head and working down her body. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that put off the the medieval trend of medieval interpreters who had this kind of body spirit, body soul dichotomy, thinking that the body was somehow inherently evil and we need to repress it in order to let the spirit live. Was this is this is very uh, very evocative language. This is a fountain in a garden with all kinds of precious um, you know spices and so forth. Uh, that is referring to the woman's most private part. It's a prelude to lovemaking. And he renders it, uh, well, let me read it first in uh, the NIV. Um, So Song of Songs 4.14 says, your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and alice and all the finest spices, and he translates, here are the nine um, fruits and spices, I guess. Uh, There's no reference to nine in the text. Yeah, I know from hearing his commentary, he does that because he wants to relate it to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Um, Uh And so he's trying to draw a connection there. Oh, okay. So it's like, it's like a, pre- a preaching point has been put into the text. Yeah. And then he lists in verse thirteen. He lists the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit. There are nine fruits in that garden, and I'm not going to go over them because of time. I've written about them extensively in the commentary. But he lists the nine fruits that are within this pleasure-filled garden within us. Yeah. And sometimes he'll italicize those things, but sometimes he won't alert the reader to that. He'll say, uh, he doesn't just say pomegranates, he talks about pomegranates of passion. And there he looks at the word for pomegranate, which is remon, and he sees a vague resemblance to a verb rum, which means to rise up. And so he says in his footnote something about it being connected to exalted, which then he somehow computes to passion. So that's what I mean, too. He looks at nouns. He then looks at, tries to look at their verbal root, and then he'll make a comment about, uh, uh, he'll add something to the text. And that's, uh, scholars would recognize that as an illegitimate um, approach to the text. It's what first-year Greek students do, yeah. <laughs> right? That's, right. that's the, the, the first thing I learned with, with what little Greek I did, you know, <laughs> take. First thing I learned is how most of the Greek I heard in sermons was wrong. <laughs> it was used right. incorrectly, and it's right. that kind of thing. So he also makes a big deal of homonyms. So, and that's kind of what you're, what you're it's like leapfrogging. So uh, here's a word, here's another word that sounds the same in the Hebrew. Well, I'm going to take the meaning from a different word that sounds the same, and I'm going to teleport it over here to this verse. And exactly. so he'll translate. He's actually come out and said that that um, some translations miss two thirds of the meaning of the text, not his, of course, because they're only translating one meaning of the word. And he does homonyms and etymology and all this. Now, when Jesus came to me and said, "I'm going to give you secrets," one of the secrets he gave me was uh, that of homonyms. So homonyms. I mean, the Bible is full of homonyms. Hebrew is nothing but homonyms. It is a homonymic language. In other words, every word God spoke and is written in the scriptures can have 
multiple meetings. I call it God's entertainment. I think he laughs when we read the Bible and say, oh, you think that's all it means? <laughs> uh, you know, it's Rubik's Cube. It's God's uh, entertainment. He has embedded into the scriptures such profound revelation on multiple layers and multiple levels. Okay, a homonym. See how translators are forced to, to do one meaning out of three? So two-thirds of the meaning of that word you're putting in the trash. Wow. So back into the trash, and I found the two-thirds of the other meanings, and it blew me away. What, what do scholars actually think of that? Um, scholars will sometimes recognize that there's what's called polysemy in, in the rare passage where, you know, maybe there is this W's, but it's not a consistent thing. Um, and while we're in this passage, by the way, maybe down a little bit more, it says fragrant calamus from the cross. Okay. So, and then his footnote is calamus is taken from a marsh plant known as sweet flag, which produces fragrant oil. The Hebrew word for this spice means purchased or redeemed. Well, I mean, even if that etymology is correct, which it's probably not, uh, notice how he's introducing from the cross into the text, which even if it means redeemed, and that's totally foreign to the Old Testament setting of this text. And that's yeah. what I mean by imposing. Yeah. And we love yeah. the cross. <laughs> it's, not like, yeah. it's not like there's no opposition to the cross here. It's <laughs> well, just that we right. love God so much you want to honor what he actually said and not adapt it artificially. Right. And there is a bona fide Christological reading of the Song of Songs. Uh, first of all, you interpret it in its Old Testament setting. And then, as I say, you notice this pervasive metaphor of the divine human relationship. And, of course, that continues into the New Testament, where in places like Ephesians 5, our relationship, the church's relationship with Jesus is likened to that between a man and a woman. Yeah. So but we in, don't. In a, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you can preach Christ out of the Song of Songs, but not in the way that he's proposing. Yeah, that's the more responsible way. It's, it's, there's, a, there's a metaphor here that, the, that the, the rest of Scripture reinforces, and we can go and look at the metaphor, but that doesn't make it allegory. Those are different things. Right, exactly. Yeah. So another example you give is Brian Simmons' use of the Greek Septuagint. Now, for those who don't know, tell me if I, I get this wrong, but basically the, the Septuagint, we're talking about um, the the Hebrew was translated into Greek, that Greek was accessible to people in the first century, and Brian Simmons will sometimes use that Greek translation to influence his translation. And uh, maybe yeah. I could read a, a quote from your paper here real quick and then get you to share on this. You said Simmons will sometimes use the Septuagint Greek as a source for his translation instead of the Hebrew. Now, there are sometimes good textual reasons to do this, but in this case, there are none, and he doesn't offer any, leaving us with the impression that he just uses the Septuagint when he prefers the reading, that is, when it supports his general approach. Yeah, the bottom line, you're exactly right about what the Septuagint is. It's the earliest translation of the Hebrew Bible that we have. It dates... To the, begin, to the middle of the 2nd century B.C., so it's an important source. Though uh, the Hebrew, uh, Masoretic text we call it, is uh, the best rendition of the original uh, scholars are 
generally agreed about that. And when we're doing translations, uh, we do keep an eye on the Septuagint, but you have to have a reason to think that there's a problem with the Hebrew text. There are arguments, um, and you can see them in the footnotes of all of, of your translations. I'll sometimes say Hebrews, uh, Greek, Hebrews says, and that's a signal that um, the translators have decided, and they're not that common, to be honest. Uh, but the impression that I get from 5.8 and other places where he appeals both to the Septuagint and the Aramaic, which is even more problematic because when you're talking about the Aramaic, you're talking about that interpret an interpretive paraphrase that comes hundreds of years after the time of Christ, uh, Jewish interpretive paraphrases. The impression I get isn't that he's thought through the issues of what we call text criticism, but rather that this kind of fits in with his understanding of the book. Um, so, um, or 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 it's more emotional, it's more passionate. <laughs> it kind of feeds into yeah. his preconception of what the book is. Yeah. So, in other words, if I. <clears throat> could put it this way, uh, his textual choices about what readings to use and when to use certain sources don't seem to be influenced by good wisdom here, but rather by what he likes. Is that yeah, an accurate right. representation? It's, it's, uh, he's done nothing to disabuse me of that idea um, by saying, well, here's why we go with the Septuagint rather than the Hebrew text. Yeah. It seems very subjective. All right, let's talk about his, his footnotes and his references to scholars. Uh, you mentioned this in your paper, um, but I would just say most people, most of us, are pretty impressed when they read a footnote in the Passion Translation that says, scholars say this, or scholars think this, or many Hebrew scholars say blah, 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 and it fills in the blank, and it feels pretty weighty. Um, but you mentioned the following yeah. in your paper. You said on a number of occasions... He will cite authorities to support his ideas, but in ways that we cannot follow up on. He uses phrases like some scholars or some Hebrew scholars, but not telling us who. We can't evaluate whether they exist or if they do, whether they are competent modern scholars. Um, so I was hoping you might be able to give an example of that happening in the text. So an example can be seen uh, in Song of Songs 2.17, uh, where there's a mention of what is almost certainly a place name, Batir. And he has a note saying, some scholars say Batir was a spiritual representation of a mountain of fragrant spices, i.e. the realm of holiness. I'm suspicious of such references when you say some scholars or all scholars or even just scholars say without mentioning even one scholar, particularly since, as I mentioned, I've written a, a rather comprehensive commentary on the Song of Songs in an academic series where I have read a lot of scholars and I don't know anyone who would make that point about Batir being the realm of holiness. So perhaps he can come up with somebody, but or but I I don't know what it is. So you can't check it out. You just can't give that kind of semblance of authority without backing it up. There's an awful lot of people being asked to take his word for it through throughout the translation. There's a there's a great deal of 
taking his word for it. And then when he teaches in public about his translation, he talks about how God revealed things, secrets of Hebrew and Greek that nobody's known before. And he's, he's the one unveiling it for people. Jesus Christ came into my room. He breathed on me and he commissioned me. And he spoke to me and said, and I'm commissioning you to translate, to translate the Bible, the Bible into the into translation, the, the translation project, project that I'm giving you to do. And he promised that he would help me, and he promised me he would give me secrets of the Hebrew language. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. The Spirit of the Lord came upon me. I told you I had a visitation from the one I love. He walked through my wall and breathed on me and released me to do this translation project. And those are some, I mean, either those are really wonderful claims or those are really terrible claims. It doesn't seem like there's much middle ground here. It's, and when I, when I listen to qualified people comment on it, I think they're terrible claims, to be completely honest. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think they're dangerous claims because there's no way anybody can uh, dispute him. Uh, if, uh, except by then saying, well, the Hebrew doesn't say that. And then if he responds by, God showed me this, you know, what's to prevent God revealing things to people that are really bad or dangerous or in conflict with scripture as we read it. I mean, just to give you one example, uh, there's an argument out there that even though the Bible consistently prohibits same-sex intimacy, that the Spirit has moved the church in a new direction, that even though the Bible has one message, the church has has received or certain individuals have received from the Holy Spirit a, a new message. And um, so, so you can basically undermine the whole message of Scripture by that kind of subjective authoritative appeal to the Spirit. Yeah, it's almost it's, it's like it's one thing for someone to come and say, I feel like the Lord showed me something. I want to tell you what I believe God is revealing to me. And it's something else for someone to say. God showed me that these changes I'm making to the Bible are inspired from him, and now it's saying something different than before, which is like, yeah. okay, stop. <laughs> you can't yeah. do that. Um, yeah. Because the Spirit is speaking to us through the word Scripture. They're human authors, but God is the only author of Scripture. It was already inspired. It doesn't need to be inspired again. <laughs> so, um, right. okay, let's talk real quick about some factual errors you mentioned. You said that there's a number of factual errors in the uh, Passion Translations version of the Song of Songs, and I was hoping you could cover a few examples. One I have that you brought up was from chapter 1, verse 14, and I'm going to play a clip of Brian Simmons actually teaching on this so we can get it not only in his footnotes and the text, but here's what he says about the meaning of the word in Getty. And I mean, he says this everywhere he goes and teaches. It's, I've heard of, of many clips of him saying it. In Getty means the fountain of the lamb. Wow. The blood red fountain of the lamb. My lover is to me a bouquet of henna of atonement squeezed at the fountain of the lamb. 
And there's lots of O's and O's from the audience at that point because they feel like they're getting this incredible, powerful revelation about the true meaning of Song of Solomon 114. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, my thoughts are that Getty means goat, you know, and so um, and and not lamb and there are other Hebrew terms uh, for lamb. And again, it's a example to me of uh, illegitimate imposition of New Testament meaning back on the Old Testament. And and we know how and Getty is functioning in this context. And Getty is this beautiful waterfall um, going down into a pool. It's out in the middle of the Dead Sea area. It's an oasis in the middle of this. So the Song of Songs does this. It uses geographical references to evoke certain moods and uh, emotional response. So to say my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi is to, to evoke a very romantic scene, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this, there's this desert around, but there's this oasis, and you're like the best thing from the oasis to me, yeah. this cluster of these yeah. beautiful blossoms. But instead, he wants it to be an allegory, mm-hmm. so he's, he mistranslates and says it's the yeah. fountain of the Lamb. He thinks he's getting a secret of Hebrew and Greek right. that has been repressed by his teaching, repressed by demons, and he's revealing it, but it's just a factual yeah. error. So another one is right. chapter 2, verse 1, where the Passion Translation has the phrase, um, I am the Rose of Sharon, and they, but they translate. he translates it differently. He says, I am truly his rose, the very theme of his song. Now, Brian Simmons' footnote there says the word Sharon can be translated his song. Now, Sharon, the word Sharon means his song. That's what the name Sharon means. I am the rose of his song. I am the rose of his song. I am the theme of his song. I am the rose. The rose is you, baby. What is the problem with that? The word Sharon um, is, uh, again, a geographical name. It's a particular area uh, between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean. It's known for its wildflowers uh, and... and uh, and what he's doing is kind of an etymological fallacy again. Uh, there is a Hebrew noun, shir, means uh, song, but it doesn't, not everywhere where you have those particular Hebrew consonants is it a reference to song. There are a lot of words that have those first two consonants, a uh, uh, SH sound and an R sound. And own is not a third person pronomial suffix. So, to think of it as Sharon is also appropriate for the context. You know, I am, well, a lot of translations say rose. It's probably more like a common flower because roses weren't uh, in Israel by this time. They came from China later. Um, and then a lily of the valley. So all these, you know, wildflowers out there. She's saying, I, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm a common flower. And he responds by saying, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. In other words, if you're just a common flower, then everybody else is just a thorn. You know, yeah. you stand out. So it's They're it's all ugly beautiful... compared to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> and then she responds by saying, like, an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. You know, in other words, you're a distinctive, fragrant. Uh, and apple trees are very, um, they're evocative of the sensual scene, even up to today when you have songs like, you know, don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me. <laughs> so... Yeah. So in other words, the could I say the phrase in chapter two, verse one, the very theme of his song is it just comes out ultimately out of nowhere. Uh, there's there's nothing in the text to justify that phrase. It's, it might sound nice. It might preach well. It's just not true to the word of God. Right. Yeah. That's, that's fair. Yeah. And if you want to say something about how precious we are to the Lord. There's plenty of verses you can quote. You don't have to change <laughs> anything. Yeah. Right, right. Um, also in uh, chapter 8, verse 6, Brian Simmons has a footnote where he says, the ancient Hebrew word for seal can also be translated prison cell. And he likes to preach on this when he goes out as well. Um, he says that God longs for his bride to be his love prisoner in the prison cell of his eternal love. And the, and to me, this is surprising that that phrase is in the footnotes of, an, of a translation. The Hebrew word seal is the word prison cell. Prison cell. Be imprisoned in my love. Take me as a prison cell and be my love prisoner. Come into the prison cell of my love. Is that a factual error? Does seal mean prison cell? I no. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm not familiar with that meaning of the word. Um, I'm not even sure there were a lot of prison cells in the ancient Near East. Um, you know they would throw Jeremiah in a cistern or something like that, but they didn't have jails as we know them. So seal doesn't mean prison cell. Like that's just, there's no foundational reality there whatsoever. I, I, I yeah, that no foundational reality. A seal is, this is a, a stamp seal. It's the kind of seal where you will stamp something. It's kind of like your personal ID, uh, that you put on something. It's a it's a beautiful passage that talks about how the woman is asking the man to essentially own her, you know. Um, and so it's an awful statement of surrender, mutual surrender to each other. And so there's a lot of wonderful things in there that you'll miss if you start importing foreign meanings into the text. Yeah. So where do you think he's getting this stuff? I mean, if you're willing to venture a guess, uh, if not, that's fine. Do you have an opinion on where, where this stuff is coming from? Uh, well, I think it's coming from his imagination. I mean, I think it's coming from, um, you know, if it weren't for the fact that he's doing a translation, he's showing a lot of creativity, shall we say. But this is not the place to do that type of creativity, in my opinion, and then, and then pass it off as it if, as if it's a translation of the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I realize this isn't your area of focus, but 
for me to hear him in all these clips talking about how God's giving him these insights. I'm going to enact some of this and show you some things about the Song of Songs that will just be jaw-dropping as we consider it. There are mysteries that have never come into your heart that are going to be revealed before your very eyes. I can't even exaggerate how big of a red flag that is for those who are following his teaching. He becomes the Holy Spirit guru uh, amongst large numbers of people at this point, and that's a whole other issue. Uh, on top of it all. So the Passion Translation is ultimately the work of one man, Brian Simmons. Could you explain to the audience who might not be familiar with how translations work, like how is that different than how most trustworthy translations are made? <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll give you the example of the New Living Translation, uh, which I worked on. Um, so uh, let's say I, I, I was in charge, as I said, of Psalms and wisdom literature. So I started with, uh, and we'll take the Song of Songs as an example. I did a translation of the Song of Songs according to the, you know, translation philosophy that we had as a central committee all bought into. And I worked very closely with the Hebrew text, looking at all the other uh, versions like the Septuagint and so forth. And I did a translation. Then I sent it off to three other experts uh, whom I trusted and respected who had written commentaries on the book. And then he responded to my translation. And I was, uh, I had to, if two of them disagreed with my translation, I had no, uh, I, you know, I couldn't say, I don't care what you say. I, I had to adopt their translation. And this is good checks and balances on each other. And uh, we might, and then it goes off to a stylist who takes our translation, works with it. Then I work with the stylist to make sure that the stylist, who isn't an expert in Hebrew, um, you know, didn't change the meaning. And then I send it back to the three <laughs> trans other consultants, and we worked out. And we usually had a list of things that we were still working on. And then it went to the central committee which was made up of the six senior translators uh, and the stylist plus four people from uh, the press who Tyndale House Publishers that was publishing it and who all were uh, very knowledgeable and insightful too. And, and then in that way, so it's a long process. Um, yeah, I mean, an individual translation might be more lively, but that's because you don't have those checks and balances and the liveliness sometimes goes too far. So, um, so, and I, but I think if, if people read the New Living Translation, they'll find that it's not just um, a responsible translation, but it, it's also an interesting translation. It's a readable translation. I enjoy it. I, I like the New Living Translation. <clears throat> um, so, would you be surprised to find out that Brian Simmons, the only qualification I'm able to find is a PhD in prayer? Oh, I didn't know. Sorry, I, uh, I yeah, didn't know you could get a PhD. But, yeah, uh, well, from, well, from the Wagner Institute, uh, he, got a, he got a PhD in, um, it's a specific area of prayer. And that's the only okay. thing I okay. could find. I, as far as his actual training in the languages, I, at least I couldn't... C come up with any sort of proof other than some claims that aren't, as far as I can tell, substantiated. 
I can't find anything that's there. And okay. I think the translation seems to reflect that. So, I mean, I think he's very smart. It's not like he's not intelligent. He's very yeah. intelligent. It's just... And by my comment about prayer, I don't mean to minimize the fact that prayer is really important. And I also want to say when we're doing our translation and committee, we spend a lot of time in prayer, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like we're all a bunch of, uh, you know, egghead academics and we only care about uh, what Hebrew roots mean. We do care about that, but we also, you know, we you mean you're not you're not just a bunch of spiritually dead religious scholars. That's not exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean. Uh, but, um, and and that's one of the things I found so exciting about all the translations I worked on, whether it was the NIV, the NLT, uh, or, or all the translations I worked on, everybody involved was just vitally interested in communicating God's message to the world. We felt a great responsibility, uh, to do our best, and we worked really hard uh, to uh, render it as well as we can. And even so, I mean, every translation things that uh, can be improved on later. But yeah, all the trans, all the other translations out there, with the possible, with the exception of the passage of the Passion translation, I would say are really reliable, responsible translations. Yeah, right on. Although you probably haven't looked at the Mirror Bible, but <laughs> that's yeah, another yeah. conversation. <laughs> you know, there's all these weird ones out there, right? But, um, but yeah, when I when I did my own studies, I I came from a camp that was very much like King James only ish, right? Like, yeah. and so I was very yeah. suspicious of other translations. And when I actually sat down and did my own homework on the topic, I was so pleased to find out how many good translations that have done a really good job while there's nitpicky things, of course, that I'd have, and maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, that, that really by and large, it's like pick one. (laughs) Like we have lots of great translations, but in your opinion, when it comes to the passion translation, do you think it should be in bookstores, in Bible apps, in places like Bible gateway alongside other Bible translations? No, I don't. <laughs> I I think it should be marketed for what it is, which is a kind of allegorical interpretation, rereading of the text. It, it goes way too far, in my opinion, to be presented as a translation of the Hebrew text. Awesome. <laughs> Glad to hear you say it. Because <laughs> after this project is over, I'm going to be sending this stuff over to all these different people, uh, Uversion, all the different apps and stuff to say, hey, here's the scholars reviewing the work in case yeah. you did. Because I just think they honestly don't know a lot of them. And hey, this isn't like a normal translation. And hopefully it'll make a difference. Yeah. <clears throat> and hopefully Brian Simmons won't sue me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know how he could sue you, but uh, you might try. I actually was uh, hired as a consultant. I thought it was to Bible Gateway as to what I thought about putting the Passion translation there. And my conclusion was, no, you shouldn't. But I see it's still there. So I'm not sure. I can't remember whether it might have been the publisher who was asking me whether they should actually publish it. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was. Was okay. I do a lot of consulting work, so some of them blend together. I'm sure you're was, on people's speed dial for a lot of things, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you some quick fire questions. If I could just get like oh, yeah. one one sentence response 
to these different yeah. things. <clears throat> um, do you have anything nice to say about the Passion Translation's handling of the Song of Songs? Uh, I don't have anything nice to say about it as a translation. Uh, no, I think it's a misleading translation. Okay, here's a quote from, actually, I'm going to give you several quotes from the Passion Translation's website. This is the FAQ. This is where people who want to know more go. And here's just maybe your you know, 10-second response to each of these quotes would be great. The Passion Translation is an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to seriously study God's Word. I uh, do not believe that the Passion Translation should be used as a primary or secondary translation because it's not a translation of the Hebrew and Greek text. All right. This is a quote from um, a very, very influential pastor, Bill Johnson, uh, who is being used to advertise the Passion Translation. He says, it is one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my lifetime. And I would say that that's a very misleading uh, statement uh, because it's not a translation, but also a lot of wonderful things have happened in Bible translation, particularly in the 80s and beyond. And he was definitely alive in the 80s. So, all right, here's another one. Um, this, This comes from page eight of the new 2020 edition. The Passion Translation is committed to bringing forth the potency of God's Word in relevant contemporary vocabulary that doesn't distract from its meaning or distort it in any way. The Passion Translation distorts from the meaning of the original language. It certainly is very vibrant and potent language. It just doesn't relate well to the original languages. Let's pretend... In a, that a Christian turns to you and says, I'm getting the Passion Translation. My pastor says it's the best thing that's happened to Bible translation in our lifetime. This Christian loves the Passion Translation. They feel like it's really blessed them. If you had just like 10 seconds to tell them what they needed to know about this translation, what would you say? I, I would say that they should spend some time comparing the Passion Translation to other translations and see just how divergent it is from those translations. Yes, a balance. Now I always love because scholars always give me balanced and thoughtful <laughs> remarks, which is what I'm hoping for. Um, yeah. Now so I wanted to know. I would tell them. <laughs> burn it. No. <laughs> um, now, would you mind, re- if you can, if you have your paper in front of you, um, if you could read to us the first two sentences from your conclusion of your paper. I just wanted to maybe get you on record reading that. I thought you um, summarized your thoughts very well there. The Passion Translation is a deeply flawed presentation of the Song of Songs. Its imposition of an allegorical interpretation represses the primary meaning of the book. One can't hear God's intended message in this translation. And that's what I was hoping you would share. (laughs) This is just the beginning of the content I'm releasing for The Passion Project. I'm going to be interviewing a number of different scholars. I'll be putting all their interviews up for free, and I'm going to make their papers that they wrote available for free as well. You'll find it on my YouTube channel. You'll see it in the links below on every video. I'll put links to all the videos as they come out, and you can find it on my website, BibleThinker.org. Thank you so much for your support that has made this project possible. We do need to get the word out because this isn't even a translation. I welcome and anticipate a lot of scholars 
bringing their review and bringing their comments to us. So uh, excited about how this may shake the translation world for, for this generation.